بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وسبحان الله العلي العظيم نشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وأن محمدا عبده ورسوله خاتم النبيين المرسل رحمة للعالمين سبحان الله نؤمن به ونستعينه ونستهديه ونستجيره ونستنصره فإنه حق من يهدي الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له اللهم اجعل في أسماعنا نورا واجعل في بصرنا نورا واعظم لنا نورا واجعل لنا في أهلنا نورا وفي بيتنا نورا وفي أمتنا نورا واجعل لي يا رب العالمين في كلامي نورا وصلي وسلم وبارك على محمد النبي الأمين There are so many challenges in today's world to all human beings and of course to Muslims. The challenges are so numerous that there is really no point in recounting all of them or even attempting to summarize them. However, it is critical, it is always critical to remember that whatever challenges confront humanity, whatever challenges confront Muslims, at the core of everything, at the core of everything is the personhood of a human being. In other words, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created individuals, persons, and each individual that comes to this world comes with an equal right to all other individuals as Allah's creatures and Allah's creation we come to this world as individuals we belong to different families different cultures different societies different tribes different clans different countries different nations but at the core of everything, we are creatures of God created individually with an equal right to exist, to safety, to peace, 
to tranquility, to happiness, to security, to life, and to dignity. This is at the heart and core, this is at the heart and core of human rights. So, put it differently, of all the challenges that confronts human beings, all the challenges that confront human beings on this, in this world, when you distill everything and strip it down to its core, what we are really talking about are the rights of human beings in this world. The issue could have geopolitical proportions, could have numerous economic frameworks, could camouflage in so many ways. The issue could sound like it is about countries, nations, sovereignty, geopolitics, economic world orders, but at the heart and core of everything is what we label in modern language as human rights. Human rights stripped to its essential and basic meaning that every individual that comes to this world, every human being, at the heart of everything, is born, needs to be safe, needs to be fed, housed, closed, needs to be loved, needs to be nourished, needs to grow up, needs to be free to create bonds, relationships, to seek an education, to feel dignified and honored, and to feel safe and secure, and to be able to exist until to be able to exist in prosperity and dignity until this individual leaves this world. You will not find a human being that Allah creates that will, for instance, say, when I reach the end of my life, I, don't, I, I want to become homeless. Or when I reach the end of my life, I want to run the risk of starving to death. Or when I reach the end of my life, I don't mind if people insult me and abuse me and degrade me. This is at the core of what human rights are about. And it is essential that we remember that. And it is particularly essential for Muslims because Muslims too often lose sight of that. 
And they often, too often, get lost in the jungles of dogma, ideology, doctrinal debates, technicalities, laws, while losing sight of the very basic and fundamental elementary principles that apply to Allah's creation and the very notion that Allah dignified humanity and dignified creation. This is precisely why, inshallah, I will take the first khutbah to comment on a State Department report on the, on the subject of human rights that was issued recently. In the Trump administration, the State Department, the Secretary of State Department, Pompeo, appointed a commission called the Commission on Unalienable Rights, a commission that is supposed to advise the State Department and the Trump administration on the subject of human rights in the modern age. And that commission has concluded its work and issued a report that is supposed to advise our government on the issue of human rights. The charter of this commission is not clear as to what this advice means. But what concerns me and what interests me here is that the topic of human rights is too important for us Muslims to ignore. And it is too important for us not to recognize that the way that our government conducts itself, especially in foreign relations, when it comes to the issue of human rights, is at the core of who we are as American citizens and what we should care about. It was rather interesting from the outset that when the commission was formed by the Trump administration, Mary Ann Glendon, who's a very well-known Harvard Law professor, was appointed as the chair of the commission. Now, the appointment of Mary Ann Glendon to chair the commission gives the commission a certain ideological bent. 
Mary Ann Glendon is known in the conservative movement, is known as a human rights scholar or illegal scholar whose writings on human rights favors a certain conception of human rights especially the American conception of human rights as founded and anchored in the biblical tradition. So in other words, she sees the American civilization as part of what people like Mary Ann Glyndon would call the Judeo-Christian tradition. What was notable as well about this commission is that Peter Berkowitz was appointed as executive secretary, is a professor at Stanford. Kenneth Anderson is a professor of law at American University, Washington College of Law. Russell Berman is a Stanford professor. Carosa is a well-known professor at the University of Notre Dame, well-known in the human rights natural law field. David Chi Chain Pan is a professor at the University of California at Irvine, who has writings in the field of, in the field of human rights as well. Jacqueline Rivers teaches at Harvard and she has writings and publications in the field of human rights. Mir Slovicek is a professor at Yeshiva University who has written on human rights in the Jewish tradition. Katrina Lantos-Sweat um, is from the Tom Lantos Foundation. Um, she holds a Harvard PhD and she also has well-known set of writings on, in the field of human rights, although I don't count Katrina as a real scholar. Christopher Tolfson is from the University of South Carolina, teaches at the University of South Carolina, but uh, he as well, not but, but Christopher is also a well-known scholar of natural law tradition. He's published a great deal on the natural law and human rights traditions. And the Muslim representatives was Hamza Yusuf from Zaytuna. Now, this points already to an issue that we Muslims, and I know that I might be in the extreme minority here, but truth must be spoken. We Muslims, since the advent of the colonial age, our presence in the human rights field is the presence precisely of an errand boy. We are always appointed for the purpose of simple representation, but we are not expected to engage in any meaningful or serious way in the discourses about human rights in the world today that, that exists today.
And the fact that you have a commission whose members, every single one of them, has already had a long record in scholarship on human rights, except for the Muslim voice. You already have a commission whose every member is already a published, recognized voice in the field of human rights, except for the Muslim voice is problematic. Nevertheless, we waited until the report came out. The Atlantic magazine greeted the publication of this report in the following way. The Atlantic magazine published an article commenting on the, this commission and the conclusion of its work by publishing an article titled The Problem with the Judeo-Christian Tradition. The article starts out, last week the State Department's Commission on Unalienable Rights issued its report on the global status of human rights. The report, which resulted from a year of cerebral discussions with a carefully curated set of scholars and activists, they're actually, the use of activists is interesting. Set of scholars and activists brought the conversation back to where it started, an impassioned celebration of religious freedom as the most important human right. Anticipating criticisms of advancing a highly selective conservative Christian reading of human rights, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has defended the focus on religious rights as a distinctively American birthright now applicable to all manner of faith traditions. In fact, he argues the original American human rights vision was inspired equally by another non-Christian religion, Judaism. The report, he has said, will return America's standing of human rights back to the fundamental moorings of the Judeo-Christian tradition on which this country was founded. The article in The Atlantic then goes on to say, the problem, though, is that the so-called Judeo-Christian tradition was never, has never existed that in fact the concept of a Judeo-Christian tradition was invented only in the 20th century as a response to the conflict with the communist bloc and with national socialism and communism. And that then the article goes on to discuss the writings of Paul Tillich, the American philosopher Paul Tillich, and his use of the concept of American Jewish, I'm sorry, Judeo-Christian values and Judeo-Christian civilization. But as the article correctly points out, there was never a Judeo-Christian civilization and there was never a Judeo-Christian tradition. In fact, Christians, for most of their history, 
have systematically and persistently discriminated against and persecuted Jews and targeted and targeted their values, their traditions, their histories, their institutions. There's a very good and a very important book that discusses the concept of Judeo-Christian tradition and the concept of Judeo-Christian civilization in a coherent, scholarly, and systematic way. The book is written by Professor Helen Gaston. It's called Imagining Judeo-Christian America, Religion, Secularism, and the Re Redefinition of Democracy. If you want a thorough vetting of that concept of Judeo-Christian anything, you should read that book. Now, the response of the Atlantic Magazine to the report is very interesting. The Atlantic Magazine looked at the report and said that basically the report is a fulfillment of an already biased project, a project in which the Trump administration wanted to claim that the American human rights tradition is based in the Judeo-Christian tradition to basically say that American human rights are Judeo-Christian. And that the objective of the Trump administration was already an ideological project, not about human rights at all. And that the commission's report basically fulfilled that role in that it privileges religious freedom, and we'll talk about why religious freedom in a second, and that it anchors American human rights in the Judeo-Christian tradition, and that as such, it plays into the imperialistic project of the Trump administration around the world. Of course, I've read the report, and because the report is written by sophisticated academics, for the most part, I can already tell from reading this report that if you've read the works of Mary Ann Glenton, you can see clearly her hand signature all over the report. In fact, the report really is a product of the precise scholarship you would expect from Mary Ann Glendon. It talks about a distinctive American human rights tradition. A distinctive American human rights tradition that is distinct and separate from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It talks about points of overlap between the international human rights tradition and the American human rights tradition. It talks about that 
the true human rights tradition and replace with the word true American is that these are rights that are innate, that are God-given, that are based in natural law. And that the rights that are based in natural law are separate and apart from the rights that are a product of positive law or international treaties. That in fact the natural rights that are part of the natural order trump and precede any contractual social rights that might be created. It talks about the fact that civil and political rights are more fundamental and more basic than economic and cultural and social rights. While conceding that all rights in theory are equal, in reality, the U.S must give priority to certain rights over others. And that it is entirely just and justified for the United States in conducting its foreign policy to privilege certain rights over other rights. In this report, we find At the very beginning, under the heading The Distinctive American Rights Tradition, the report says, among the traditions that form the American spirit, three stand out. First, Protestant Christianity, widely practiced by the citizenry at the time, was infused with the beautiful biblical teachings that every human being is imbued with dignity and bears responsibilities towards fellow human beings because each is made in the image of God. The civic republican ideal rooted in classical Rome stressed that freedom and equality under the law depend on an ethical citizenry that embraces the obligations of self-government. And classical liberalism put at the front and center of politics the moral premise that human beings are by nature free and equal which strengthened the political conviction that legitimate government derives from the consent of the government. Elsewhere, this rather long report tells us, drawing on the, American, drawing on the modern tradition of freedom, drawing on the modern tradition of freedom and their biblical heritage, the American founders saw themselves as intellectual and political pioneers of religious liberty. Elsewhere, the report underscores the same idea underscores the same idea by saying
by again saying that the American rights tradition is based on the biblical heritage or on the teachings of the Bible. In three different spots, the report underscores this. If you don't know much about the human rights field, you might say to yourself, well, well what's the problem with making that claim? Well, the problem is that it is historical fiction. The idea that the Bible is at the core of the human rights tradition is a political ideological invention. It's a fantasy of a group of scholars who wish that the United States was a Christian nation rather than a secular nation born out of a secular tradition. Human rights, despite the writings of Pfeffendorf and Suarez and Gochias and, and, and the idea that the human rights tradition was somehow anchored in Rome and its civilization is an equally grotesque misrepresentation and twisting of history. The problem is, is that while the report presses all the rights buttons, the report says, you know, it's horrible that human rights were abused to perpetuate colonialism. It's really terrible what we've done to the American Indians. It's really terrible that we have a history of racism and a history of slavery. The report even cites the works of Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King and gives honorable mention to Malcolm X, although distorting the teachings of Malcolm X and misrepresenting the teachings of Malcolm X. All of that is lip service because at the core, in order to accept what this report offers, you have to accept that there is an American human rights tradition and that that tradition is anchored in the Bible and in Rome, i.e. the Western civilization and not just the Western civilization, but a certain type of Western civilization, a religious reading of the Western civilization. Already, the report does what colonialism has done. While going around saying we believe in liberty and freedom for all, the very premises of the ideological bias, the project is biased and prejudiced. In other words, the report in advocating human rights is already biased in that it tells us if you want to adopt the American version of human rights, and in fact, if you read the report carefully, the entire human rights tradition, if it's based on natural law, would be a Christian thing. You, you as a Muslim, as a Buddhist, as a Hindu, 
must re realize that you are accepting a biblical tradition, a Roman tradition. Nothing is said, of course, about in the report about the Islamic tradition, about the fact, or even about, to be quite honest, about Catholic Christianity. The report is profoundly blind about Catholicism and profoundly biased in favor of Protestant Christianity. And somehow we are to believe that while Muslims and their civilization contributed nothing, Buddhists and their civilization contributed nothing, Catholicism doesn't even get a mention. It's all to the credit of Protestant Christianity and Judaism, because Judaism gets lip service. It gives, it, it's granted honorary, honorary admission into the ideological project of the report. You might say, hold on, well, what's the problem? Okay, so if they want to believe that the American human rights tradition is founded on the Bible, although if you read the Bible, you'd realize that's an impossibility. And if you knew the history of secularism, you would also realize that that's an impossibility. And if you knew the history of colonialism, you would know that the world was colonized because of the Bible, or an ideological trope in the colonization of the world was the Bible. The Bible was not used in the colonial project to defend the rights of people. It was used to dominate and control and abuse people. You might say, well, what's the problem? You, they want to believe that, let them believe that. The problem is that when all is said and done, the report says the following. There are a set of rights that are fundamental and core. And then there are subsidiary rights, and there are legal rights, political rights, that are not so, not so essential and core. What are those essential and basic rights? They're the rights of the Declaration of Independence, they're the American rights, they're the biblical rights. Well, like what? the pursuit of happiness, liberty, equality before the law, and religious freedom. Well, what are the rights that are not so important? Well, the rights to have a home, the rights to have food, the rights to have a job, the right to have an education, the report says, well, you know, the right of education and the right of a home and those economic types of rights are recognized through our New Deal laws. But they're not constitutional rights, and that's okay. Well, that's exactly the problem. That's exactly the problem. 
So why privilege religious rights? Why does the Atlantic point out to the fact that the report privileges religious rights and the Atlantic is right? In the Christian tradition, what religious rights amounted to was the right to proselytize and evangelize the rest of the world. The right to religious freedom was used by the United States to support missionary work in Japan after World War II, to support missionary work in South Korea, to support missionary work in China and Taiwan, to support missionary work in Sudan, to support missionary work all over Africa. In other words, it was used by Christian fundamentalists to violate the separation of church and state in America and to evangelize among Buddhist cultures and Hindu cultures and Muslim cultures. While the United States is not troubled by the restrictions that Russia places against Muslim evangelists in Russia, the United States will never object to the laws in Poland that prohibit Muslim evangelists from evangelizing for Islam in Poland, they are extremely troubled by any laws in Egypt or in Algeria or in Jordan or in Syria or in Bahrain that restrict the right of Christian evangelists to evangelize around the world. That's a violation of the Constitution. But that's the version of human rights that this report endorses. We all remember what happened when Turkey detained a single American priest. Muslims are murdered in the thousands and hundreds and thousands every year including Muslim American citizens, are killed in Egypt. And the United States doesn't care. But Turkey touches one Christian evangelist, and we saw how the Trump administration reacted. Now, the remarkable thing about this report is that it says it's okay for the United States to focus on certain rights as a policy matter. The United States can't serve all rights equally, so it's okay for the United States to discriminate in favor of protecting religious rights over others. So what type of world do we end up with? A world in which the United States supports dictators like Sisi in Egypt with genocidal policies. A world in which the United States cover up the murder of Kamal Khadjoukji in Saudi Arabia. A world in which the United States is friends 
with a tyrannical government, such as the one in the United Arab Emirates, and a world in which the United States ignores the systematic human rights abuses committed by Israel, but a world in which the United States defends the rights of American evangelists to go around Christianizing the world. And according to the report, that's okay. That's how it should be. The report doesn't mention once the Palestinians or Israelis. It doesn't even talk. It, in fact, the report says it is just and fair that the United States would defend fellow democracies. That the United States would defend fellow democracies. Is this a reference to Israel? And in today's interconnected world, the defense of freedom at home may require the United States to come to the aid of friends of freedom abroad in repelling the aggression of freedom's enemies. Is this a human rights report or an ideological tract written by the Trump administration? No mention of the Palestinians anywhere. Saudi Arabia is mentioned as a human rights abuser once. The United Arab Emirates, not a single time. American policy towards the Rohingyas, where we sat on the side and watched the genocide perpetuated against Muslims and another genocide perpetuated in Bosnia. Not a word. What's most important is for Christian evangelists to go around Christianizing the world. Well, you might say, well, wait a minute. What's the problem with Christian evangelists having the right to go around the world? Well, one, they're not entitled to, you, to do it using American tax dollars. And they do use American tax dollars. Two, they're not entitled to you do it under the color of American authority. And this is precisely what we've done in Iraq, for instance. Those American evangelists, the reason they got visas to enter Iraq is because of the power of the American government and the connections of the American government. The reason that they got the power to go to Japan and South Korea and Taiwan and spread American Christianity, Protestant Christianity, was because of the power and authority of the American government. And that's a violation of our Constitution and also a violation of human rights. But according to this report, it's perfectly all right. The problem is that this is not a free and fair competition among religions. This is part of the colonial project. American evangelists don't go and appeal to reason. They go and exploit need. They go where people are starving and in need, and illiterate and in need, and they say, we will feed you, we will give you jobs, we will educate you, but accept Jesus. And if you don't accept Jesus, 
then you get nothing. That is an exploitation of human rights and religion and an exploitation of America. There is nothing in this report about American human rights violations in Iraq. Nothing about what we've done in Iraq, the millions of people that we've murdered, and why did we invade this country. Nothing in this report about the fact that our invasion of Iraq was against every human rights protocol and treaty, convention, or theory known to humankind. And what are we still doing in Afghanistan? Does anyone know how many people kill we killed in Afghanistan? Does anyone know how many people we've abused? How many orphans we've created? How many women we've raped? Does anyone know that the fact that when American soldiers murder innocent people in Iraq and Afghanistan, the same Pompeo administration lets these American soldiers off the hook? And this report is perfectly fine with all of that. You might say, oh, hold on. Hold on. Well, you know, it's a group of already right-wing conservative scholars. Every single one of these people appointed to this commission is a Republican right-winger. And it was expected that they would write a report that would rubber stamp Pompeo's and Trump's conception of the world and a conception of the United States. Yeah, but there is one problem with this. Problem, brothers and sisters, is the Muslim voice. They're one of two things. Either the Muslim representative, Hamza Yusuf, is ideologically a Republican right-winger, and then we can understand his signature at the end of this report. Or he was put where he does not belong. Because he does not have the understanding of the subtleties and complexities and history of the human rights tradition and its debates. And so he was like the, the person invited to the party who has have no clue what is going on and he's just happy to be the Muslim representatives smiling pointlessly and meaninglessly as non-Muslims look at him condescendingly and praise him. Good boy, good boy. But he contributes nothing. If there was a real Muslim voice, it would be a dissenting voice in this report. A Muslim voice would say, hold on, hold on. How about Iraq? How about the Palestinians? How about the Afghanis? How about the thousands and thousands and thousands of Muslims butchered everywhere? How about the human rights abuses of Christian missionaries all over the Middle East and all over the world? 
How about the fact that you've used American power to Christianize the world in a colonial project? How about? No, as a Muslim, I can't join this nonsense. But of course, in order to have someone like that, you need someone with sophistication. Someone with qualifications. Someone who has spent a lifetime studying the human rights tradition. Either the Muslim voice is the Republican right-winger who agrees with everything, or is simply clueless. And I think it's the second option, to be frank with you. Clueless. Till when are Muslims treated this way? Till when? Do you have Muslims going around and saying, Alhamdulillah, brother, Alhamdulillah, brother, Alhamdulillah, brother. It's really good that we have a Muslim voice. No, with a document like this, you should much rather not have a Muslim voice than have a Muslim voice that rubber stamps an embarrassing conception of human rights worldwide and in American like this. If you're not a specialist in human rights, you'll read this report and you'll completely miss all the, po all the truly problematic issues. But if you are a scholar in the field, you'd immediately recognize the danger points and the true danger zones of a report like this that rubber stamps everything from U.S. involvement in the Korean War, to the Vietnam War, to the Iraq War, to the Afghani War. The U.S. support for genocidal dictators like Sisi in Egypt. But the Muslim representative is a card-carrying, proud, agent on behalf of the United Arab Emirates. According to his own biography, he is happily appointed to an official capacity on behalf of one of the main human rights violators in the Arab world. In fact, the president, the king of the United Arab Emirates is known in the Arab world as Shaitan al-Arab, the devil of Arabs, because of the, new, the number of human rights violations he's involved in. This is like someone who represents the Assad regime being appointed to a human rights commission in the United States. Yes, it is that serious, and yes, it is that bad. And sadly, until my fellow Muslims recognize what is up and what is down, what is moral and what is immoral, what is wrong and what is right, then you have your way and I have mine. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. 
والصلاه والسلام على محمد وعلى اله واصحابه ومن اتبعه باحسان الى يوم الدين وسبحان الله العلي العظيم والحمد لله رب العالمين والله اكبر على كل من اعتدى وتجبر In the second khutbah, I want to take us away from the field of Muslim failures and disappointments and heartbreak and all the ways that Muslims have yet so much to accomplish before they can speak on behalf of God or at least represent God's Islam in an honorable, respectful, and dignified fashion. The Muslim tradition is so full of moral examples. So full of moral examples. And for me, I always try to understand what value system, what moral framework, what vision of human dignity and human rights led or inspired and guided early Muslim generations that created one of the greatest civilizations that humankind ever saw. And time and time again, I come to the fact that it was rather elementary for the earliest generation of Muslims that a cause demands sacrifices and that without sacrifices any talk about a cause is nonsense and that the most important type of sacrifice was one in which you relinquish your attachment to materialism and the luxuries and enjoyments. Those earlier generations, when we look at what they were willing to forgo to uphold a principle, they weren't talking about relatively minor things like a fancy title that the United Arab Emirates government is going to give you or a little bit of extra money that the Saudi government will grant you or privileged treatment once you land in the airport or leave through the air outside of the airport that the Egyptian government might give you. But they were truly 
sacrificing the most fundamental things that you can think of in human life. Quickly want to give you two examples. One of them more known than the other. The example of companion of the Prophet Mus'ab bin Umair. Mus'ab bin Umair was raised in a wealthy Meccan family who was so accustomed to luxuries. One of the greatest luxuries in that day and age was if you could afford to take care of your skin through the use of skin creams. Skin creams was something enjoyed only by the elite and the richest classes. Well, Mus'ab bin Umair was known to have beautiful skin because of all the skin creams that his family could afford to buy. And he was always impeccably dressed and was known among the most handsome youth of Mecca and the best dressed youth of Mecca. But then Islam happened. And when Mus'ab bin Umair heard the Prophet recite the Quran in Mecca, it captured his heart. And he was thoroughly convinced that this is God's prophet. And that Islam is God's message to humanity. So Mus'ab ibn Umair it took some time before he came out in public but he didn't come out about his preferences in life. He didn't come out about his career goals. He came out about his love and passion for Islam. When his family found out, the imprisoned Mus'ab ibn Umair starved him, denied him his in privileges and his entertainments, wouldn't let him go out, locked him up in a room, and abused him. He refused to leave the Islamic faith and would sit in his home prison reciting the Quran and praying until it reached a point that his mother feared that Mus'ab will perish. He was losing weight and looking like a shadow and it's like a skeleton. So finally his mother told him, okay, I'm done with this. I'm letting you go, but know that if you follow Muhammad, I'm not your mother anymore and I don't know you. And Mus'ab said, I have no choice. I know he is the truth. And he picked up 
and he left to Medina where he joined the Prophet The remarkable thing about Mus'ab ibn Amir, the remarkable thing about him is that he went from someone who was famous in Mecca for the privileges of wealth that he enjoyed to someone of the most sincere and honest servants of Islam, but also someone who became famous in Medina for his poverty and for his rags. And people would often comment, what a difference between the old Mus'ab who used to wear the most expensive textiles and the Mus'ab of Medina that was often dressed in rags because he often took menial jobs, bare persistent job, persistence, subsistence jobs just to exist and subsist. Mus'ab was raised in such a fine manner that some of the companions commented that when they were in Medina, they would march long distances when they had a battle. They would march long distances in the desert. And that their feet and their legs could handle the marsh and could handle the heat and the, the, the heat from the sand of the desert. Poor Mus'ab, because he was raised in luxury, his feet would blister and he would get cramps that were so bad that the other companions would have to carry him on their way to battle and the way back from battle. Despite that, Mus'ab persisted. Eventually, Mus'ab dies during a military campaign. And when he dies, he has absolutely nothing. To the point that when they try to find a cloth to do his kafan, to do his shroud, his death shroud, there, he doesn't even have a cloth that is big enough to cover his entire body. Not even a textile or a piece of clothes at his home to cover his entire body. So they use one that covered his head, leaving his feet exposed, and then the Prophet ﷺ went and got another piece of cloth from someone in order to cover the feet. Truly a story from riches to rags, but a person among the people who, in terms of contributions of, to Islam and to the founding of the Islamic message, Mus'ab bin Umair was core. Another very similar story is someone who is labeled Zul Bijadayn. Zul Bijadayn was another Meccan youth. He was 16 years old when he converted to Islam, but 
raised in a very wealthy family. His father had died and left him an orphan. His uncle was extremely wealthy and raised Zul Bijadain in the midst of luxury. When Zul Bijadain was about 16 years old, he met a group of Muslim travelers who told him about the Prophet Muhammad and read to him some of the Quran. The minute he heard the Quran, he was enraptured. And every time Muslims would come passing by where Zurbijadain lived with his uncle and the rest of the family members, he would go out to meet the Muslims to listen to the Quran and memorize as much of it as he can. In fact, there's a story that he would follow the Muslims about 10 kilometers out of Mecca just to listen to Quran from them. And then about 10 kilometers, he would go back to Mecca. He converts to Islam, but fearing the reaction of his uncle, he hides his conversion. Eventually, it comes out that he's a Muslim and he recites the Quran to his uncle and asks his uncle to convert. His uncle absolutely refuses and tells Jodul Bujaydain, if you leave to Mecca or if you remain a Muslim or you leave to Medina, I will disown you. And not only that, but every bit of money that I've given you, I want back. Zul Bijadain insisted on being Muslim. And as a result, his uncle took away everything he gave him. But not only that, he ripped off the clothes that Zul Bijadain was wearing until he was butt naked. Said, I won't even allow you to wear the clothes that I spent money on. Naked, and in a real bind, Zul Bijadain went to his mother. And his mother, who was also opposed to him being Muslim, the, the most she could do for him was that she brought a piece of cloth, tore it into two pieces. One piece he wrapped around himself, and the other piece he used as an izar, he put around his shoulders. This is why he became known as Zul Bijadain, meaning the man of two cloths. Wearing nothing but these two pieces of cloth, he travels to Medina. Having lost the connection with his family forever, his mother and his uncle who raised him and he was very close to. And in Medina, again, as an immigrant, he is absolutely in complete poverty. But Zul Bajadain was obsessed with prayer and with the Quran. He memorized the entire Quran as it was being revealed and would spend so much time reciting the Quran out aloud in the masjid that everyone in Medina got to know who this man is because of his beautiful recitation of the Quran and because whenever they would see him, he's either reciting the Quran 
or doing something that the Prophet ﷺ asked him to do, including go out in battles, join trade caravans. But even when he would go out to battle or trade, he would consistently pray and recite the Qur'an, especially recite the Qur'an. Eventually, in the Battle of Tabuk, on the way to the Battle of Tabuk, Zubul Bajadain dies of a plague. There's a plague, he catches the plague, and he dies. The Prophet and Umar ibn Khattab and Abu Bakr personally attended to his burial. And when the Prophet lowered him to his grave, the Prophet prayed for him and said, I love him, so Allah, please love him. The man lived from absolute luxury to absolute poverty. There's even stories I don't have the time to go into about his marriage to a woman and, and the absolute poverty that he lived in, even with his wife. I mean, when I say absolute poverty, I mean owned absolutely nothing. The cloth he was buried with in the battle, on the way to battle of the book, was the only piece of clothing that he owned. These are the people who established that religion. This is the level of sacrifice. I don't know a cause on the face of this earth that didn't take dedicated people who is willing to sacrifice everything in the sake of that cause. The hardest thing to sacrifice is money and time. The easiest shortcut is to end your life, is to sacrifice your life. That's the easiest shortcut. The hardest is money and time. May this Ummah wake up and may we realize the type of commitment that guided our ancestors and that allowed Allah's barakah and Allah's aid to be with them. Allahumma afu anna, Allahumma khfir lana, Allahumma arhamna, Allahumma usur al-islam wa'izz al-muslimin, ya Rabbil alameen. Allah forgive our sins, guide us to a better past, guide us to the straight past. Give us light, light and wisdom and make us sagacious in all of our affairs. Make us sincere in your service, Ya Allah.